Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. So happy you are here. My goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga, massage, body work, and beyond. Follow us at Native Yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com. All right, let's begin. All right, this is Native Yoga Toddcast. My name is Todd McLaughlin. Today my guest is Marco Mikila. Marco is in Finland. He is a PhD student. He is a yogi and a philosopher. Let's begin. So happy to have this opportunity to speak with Marco Mikila. And Marco, can you tell me how you are feeling today? And you're in Finland. Can you give me an idea of what the weather is like for you today? Uh, well, today it's really sunny, as you maybe can see from the re- reflection. <laughs> I'm, the sun is straight in front of me. I put the, I covered the window with the curtain, but still it's shining really brightly. Yeah. Uh, so it's a beautiful sunny uh, day in in the winter wonderland. Yeah. You said you got a fresh dumping of snow as well, which you made mention is is unusual for this time in December. Yeah. During the last years, it hasn't been so common. When, when I was a kid, it was still common that we had snow snow co- snow cover already in in uh, November. But now sometimes it it comes only in January. But now we have it already at the end of had it already at the end of uh, November. So and that makes it a lot more pleasant to uh, endure these dark months because then it's not so dark simply when the when the uh, snow is reflecting the light. Yeah, I recently had a chance to interview Magnus Appelberg. I have a feeling yeah. Magnus is swimming today over there in Finland. Is that something that you could you could uh, even contemplate that, or is that something yeah. that you would do? Yeah, I have I have tried it. Well, Magnus, I guess does it every day, as far as I understand. Yeah, I I, I know all these Finnish people that you have interviewed because Finland is very small, so we all know each other's, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I have tra- we have a long tradition in Finland of uh, of uh, winter swimming, meaning that we go to sauna, which is by the sea or by the lake, and we have uh, made a hole in the ice, and we go to sauna, then we dip in the water, then we go to the sauna, and it's really an ecstatic uh, feeling after the dipping into ice cold water and go go to the sauna. It's mm-hmm. one of the most uh, it's one of the most pleasant, comfortable feelings you have, can have in life. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's amazing. That sounds so cool. Yeah. Can you tell me, Marco, a little bit about your background in yoga? How did you first get interested in yoga practice or yoga philosophy? Yeah. Um, well, I first, when I was in my 20s, I started doing uh, uh, Japanese martial arts. First, I did Japanese martial arts, then Chinese martial arts. And during that time, during those 10 years, I got also interested in Eastern philosophy, initially like Taoism and uh, and Zen Buddhism. So I dabbled a bit in the, those first. And uh, and uh, then when I was doing these Chinese, Chinese martial arts, I started more and more uh, concentrating on the so-called internal practices, because they usually divide 
Chinese martial arts into external and internal. So I started to do more and more of these so-called internal, like Tai Chi and similar practices, Qigong, and started reading more and more about philosophy, about also some new age stuff. But then I decided to try yoga. Well, first I actually did it from a book. I, I had this book on the five Tibetan rites, which is like Tibetan yoga. And I did those for a while in the mornings and they felt good. And then one friend of me, friend of mine asked in 2001, that would I like to join him and go to Ashtanga Yoga beginners course, like a weekend beginners course. And I said, okay, I can, I can join you. And I went there and uh, already the first evening, uh, I felt very good in my body. So that's why I decided to uh, experiment a bit more with, the, with yoga. Yeah. Nice. And did you continue down the Ashtanga track or? Yeah. First it was that. Um, so I started doing like the Ashtanga practice first, like three or four times a week as a sidekick to the martial arts practices that I was doing. Mm. But then after half a year of doing it, I felt like something is shifting in me that I wanted more to experiment more with. Uh, And I, I, I decided to stop the martial arts and only start doing uh, the Ashtanga practice in the mornings, six days a week, uh-huh. like it's prescribed. Yes. <laughs> and, and then a few years later, I started teaching it. And uh, at one point I was running my own studio or I, I owned the studio with two other people. So we were running it together, a studio in Turku, which is a, um, town on the west coast of Finland but now I, now I live in Helsinki got it um, how, how many years yeah. did you have your studio it, is it Tur- Turku is that how you said it yeah Turku, Turku. yeah how long did you have how your studio mm-hmm. um, around 15 years wow yeah yes so, that's a solid uh, that's a solid stint good job and then when yeah, did, oh, was it? no no sorry uh, I think I a bit less because then I moved to in seventeen no eighteen I moved to uh, Helsinki in mm. two thousand and eighteen. So maybe I had my own studio only a bit more than ten years. But then when I moved to Helsinki, I continued uh, teaching professionally, but I was working for other other studios. So yeah, I I taught Ashtanga Yoga professionally about fifteen years, but was running my own studio only like a bit more than ten years. Yeah, I understand. Amazing. Are, do you still practice daily Ashtanga? Has your yoga and meditation practices changed, shifted, or evolved? Yeah, I don't. I don't do the Ashtanga practice as such anymore. I used to go to Mysore for twelve years annually, and oh, I was wow. like oh, wow. in the yeah. part part of the part of the subculture of those people who go to India annually. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, but then at some point, I realized that doing the Ashtanga practice as it as it's prescribed, something about it is not working for me anymore. And and I realized, like hindsight, that that has been the case already for years. But when you are doing it for your living, as you're living, and you're part of this uh, like subculture, it's not always so easy to 
realize these kind of things that maybe this is actually not working for me anymore more and and how i realized this it or noticed it was that uh the practice as such was um, creating too much like raja rajasic ener- energy or in western terms it was like agitating my nervous system uh often i really felt it quite um, palpably after the practices that this is not really working for it, for me anymore and then i started uh trying other things like i for example tried this um, uh there is this um, uh tantric yoga tradition not like neo to i want to right away make a make a make a distinction between so called neo tantra and uh, classical tantra and this uh, this this comes from uh, uh classical tantra uh there's this quite popular yoga brand brand in finland called shakta yoga i don't know how big it is in other places or do you have a, at all it in in usa but I, i they had like this offer that um for was it for 27 euros you could go to their classes for two weeks unlimitedly so i that was the first covid summer so i think it was summer 20 so i decided to try that and in that they 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 also have set sequences but they always uh after one to five poses they do uh, around 10 breath uh, uh resting pose in mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. and for me it just felt really good these resting poses in between i was like wow this feels good and then i started experimenting with ashtanga that that i did my normal practice uh and after one to five uh, poses i did some kind of resting pose um either lying down or just squatting down or any any play any any pose where you can really relax and it's all like took took the edge of the practice in the in the sense that which has i mean the edge that had been creating this uh, mm. nervous agita- agitation that i didn't appreciate so much so it seemed to work for me to start doing those resting poses and um, yeah yeah so i st- at that point i sort of like stopped doing the the prescribed ashtanga practice and then i uh, got to know this um, a guy called Janni Jaatinen who is this he's actually originally a, a student of Janne who you interviewed uh, he he's this extreme asana guy and he teaches a bit similar sequence to ashtanga practice but uh, there you can um first of all you always do every uh angle in it, like like in ashtanga we do in primary series is mainly mainly forward bends and in uh, in the second series intermediate series it's lots of back bends and hip openers but uh, in this practice that this yami was teaching we did always like or we do always like forward bend side bend uh twist uh extension of the spine and back bend first standing up and then uh, uh, uh as a seated posture and uh, but we move in the same way with the flow of the vinyasa with mm. the flow of the breath so we move in the in a similar manner as in ashtanga and that seemed to work for me better so it doesn't create when i do it like th- this way so that i do every every angle and every uh, direction in every every um uh, practice it doesn't create this uh, nervous agitation in me so I, I, that's how i've been mainly practicing for the last two, three years yeah very cool 
Well, uh, first of all, I love that you dedicated so much time every year. You, you went every year to India, it sounds like, for yeah, 10 for to 12, 12 10 years. To 12. I went usually for two months, sometimes only for one month. Yeah. And that's a serious commitment. That takes a lot of commitment. And then, yeah. you know, but sometimes it's even harder to evolve and shift and change once having set such a solid pattern. So mm. I love hearing yeah. that you, you know, were open to exploring and that you've yeah. kind of done, you've practiced research, you've, you've researched yeah. to figure out what actually works for me. Amazing. Yeah. Highly recommended. Yes. Yeah, it is highly recommended. And also what also, um, affected me was that I was all the time also researching like the history of yoga, mm. how it has been really practiced in the pre-modern times and uh, the concept of for whom and when is really central in pre-modern yoga, meaning that uh, the, the practice is supposed to be always altered according to the situation of the person, uh, the 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 um, practitioner so it, what what, yeah. what kind of phase of life you're going through what what mm. kind of stage of life you're going through because any uh, single practice whichever practice you take it's not going to work for everybody in every uh, in every uh, stage of their lives all the practices only work for certain people at a certain stage and no practice uh, should be done in the same way throughout your whole life. That's mm. how I have understood it from, yes. from the pre-modern yoga practice. So it was always altered according to the situation. And uh, you have, so I also adopted this like idea that you have to be always open to change your practice, not in the way that you always go with every whim, but you have to really feel into yourself and really feel, is this practice really working for me? in the way I want. So nowadays I actually like saying about the Ashtanga practice that the first 10 years, I think it was more beneficial than harmful, but the last 10 years, I would say that it was more harmful than beneficial for me. Yes. I understand fully. I, I, I understand. And I appreciate you bringing it into the vocal sphere. Can, can you tell me as well, Marco, what your academia history is and, or, where you are currently landing in your journey with academia? Yeah, well, I'm a PhD student in uh, in the Turku University, uh, in the university of the town where I used to live. Uh, I've been a PhD student now for around five years. I have done all the other uh, PhD student of philosophy, so like mainly Western philosophy, but I try to bring ideas from the East into the work that I do. Uh, so I so like to try to combine Western and Eastern and especially Indian ideas. Um, wow! So uh, I have done all the other other uh, studies for my PhD apart from the from the uh, the work the the so like the monograph itself. So I should write a monograph, a book uh, on something, and that I haven't done yet. And I'm applying for funding around eight times a year. Uh, eight times a year and uh, probably until I fi find funding I probably will not really start writing the book because at the moment I 
work a normal full-time job, so I don't really have time to... So I, I try to read something on the topic all the time, but I don't really have the time to seriously investigate stuff at the moment. Wow. Can you tell me what your day job is? Uh, at the moment, for the last one and a half years, I've been working at the refugee center as a so- social counselor. So when when the Ukraine start, uh, Ukraine war started, lots of uh, Ukrainian refugees came to Finland, and and they had to open uh, the Finnish immigration office had to open lots of new refugee centers, and so they needed more staff. So I started also working in that field in uh, in Vanta, which is where we have the international airport here. Oh my gosh, what yeah. what is that like? That's got to be fairly challenging in terms of the heartbreaking element of any time people are forced to leave their home. I'm yeah. imagining you encounter you're encountering a fair amount of stress and nervousness about the future. Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about what that experience is like for you working in that environment? Yeah. It is, of course, interesting when you also have this yoga background and you uh, try to sort of like bring yoga into everyday life. So it's a very, in that sense, it's a it's a fruitful place to work because you meet people all the time who are in dire situations and uh, try to meet them uh, on their level and uh, sort of like uh, see the see that they are exactly like I am deep down, although I have been a bit more lucky in life, mm. meaning that I don't have to live in a war area. Yes. At least not yet in this life. Yeah. Oh, not yet. Well, actually on that note, I, I mean, I, I want to be very respectful of your ideals and, and uh, thoughts around this. Uh, but Finland obviously is very close to Russia. Do, what mm, What yeah. is the general feeling for you and or for your other friends in Finland uh, regarding the current war in Ukraine? Well, I think it has, it has, uh, uh, people have had lots of like mental stress because, because of it, because for example, I also have uh, grandparents who really were in the war during the second world war. And we had a, war with uh, with Russia so for example my own grandfather was a, a war captive and in a Russian concentration or Soviet concentration camp oh, oh my god uh, during the war so yeah. these th- and of course these things although i haven't experienced them but uh, somehow uh, genetically like when you think of epigenetics you you do inherit uh, harsh experiences from your parents and from your grandparents. So uh, mm. I probably also have inherited some of his experiences from the concentration camp um, in some way. So many, many people in Finland have really had lots of mental stress because of this, because many of us has grandparents who were really in the war. So, and there were so many similarities with the Ukraine war and the, and the Finnish war with Soviet in the forties. Yeah, man. Very interesting, and I love the the, the thought of epige, epigenetics. Epigenetics. When I when I think about my own family bloodline, it, it, you're yeah. right. It's interesting, and you did bring up the word, uh, you know, the trauma and or, you know, like even if you don't realize why you might be being triggered, but you know, having mm-hmm. listened to your grandfather and stories, and like you said, even if 
if maybe yeah. perhaps you've never even had contact with your grandfather, that you could potentially still feel that yeah. through that experience. Um, and then uh, you made mention that when we spoke before we started this conversation, that one of the ideas that you would potentially seek funding for in writing yeah. your book for your PhD uh, is yeah. around the realm of something that you, you called the non-dual movement in which yeah. I, I immediately thought like Vedantic philosophy mm. and non-dualism there. Can you tell me a little bit what, what this is, what, what the non-dual movement is? Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, there has been a, a different types of uh, non-dual religious philosophies around the world uh, since, at least since the Upanishads. Uh, so the most famous, I guess, is Advaita Vedanta, Advaita itself meaning non-dual. But then there is also, for example, the philosophy that, that I have been uh, uh, involved with lately, the most is the so-called uh, uh, tantric uh, Advaita uh, movement, or tantric, tantric uh, classical tantric Advaita Shaivism, which is also a non-dual uh, philosophy. But then also many strands of Buddhism are non-dual, per se. Um, um, and I guess also some Muslims, maybe Sufis. I don't know the Sufism so well, but I I, I understand that they also are more or less like uh, non-dual. And I guess also some, uh, at least uh, Christian mystics, they have a non-dual view of, of the world and of the life. So non-dual uh, as such means just, uh, or the word Advaita means not to. So... Uh, it can come out in many ways um, that either that you think that uh, everything is made of one stuff, and usually in India uh, the thought is that everything is actually consciousness, so that there is no matter. Matter doesn't even exist, but of course we experience we experience something that we call matter, but there is no such thing as matter independent from consciousness. So that's one uh, uh, way of defining what uh like non-dual idealism would be uh meaning I idealism that uh, a so-called consciousness only view that there is only consciousness at the end of the day because all we can experience is consciousness because we by definition cannot ever experience anything outside of our consciousness but we are sort of like locked inside our conscious bubble so to speak <laughs> uh, but then also it can be analyzed the word non-dual in terms of subject-object, uh, is that you can experience uh, the subject and object so, so like merging together, or they're not being a subject observing objects, but there is just uh, perceiving happening. There is just seeing happening, hearing happening, uh, smelling happening, uh, uh, feeling happening, sensing happening, but there is not actually a subject uh, hearing or sensing a object. So that's sort of like one... Uh, way to analyze or define what, what non-dual experience would mean. Um, How, and then there's also yes. in India, especially the sort of like the one way to talk about non-dualism is to talk about uh, human beings or the jivas, uh, individual souls, so to speak, individual soul, 
individual souls relation to God or the Almighty or the Supreme Being. Uh, so either there is there is dualistic views where where uh, there is a supreme being that is separate from you, then then you have some like a dualistic theological view. But then you can also uh, in non-dualism, uh, it's more like uh, that there is no separate supreme being, but we are ourselves uh, fluctuations inside the supreme being. So that's also one way to talk about non non dual non dual non duality. So you can talk about it in terms of like metaphysics that there's only one thing, consciousness, or the collapsing of the subject object uh, uh, separation, or uh, like in terms of uh, your relation to a supreme being. Yeah. So. So okay, so that's the background. That's the background. So yeah. these kind of views have always been, or not always, but as long as, at least as long as there's, there has been a, like written history, there has been these kind of views in the world. But then, in the 20th century, uh, there were some Indian teachers, of whom I guess the most famous is Ramana Maharshi, uh, who started like this way of teaching that he started just teaching people by just sitting in their presence, sometimes just in silence, and sometimes answering their questions, so teaching by dialogue. Uh, and this Ramana Maharshi guy, he had uh, experienced this uh, like non-dual awakening, so he didn't experience himself as a separate being, separate self anymore. Uh, and then often people had... Uh, uh, awakening experiences just by sitting in his presence. And then some of his uh, students started teaching and that created this so-called non-dual movement, which is nowadays uh, very vast in, for example, the YouTube. There are many, many so-called non-dual teachers in the YouTube. Some of them are very popular and famous. Uh, some of them are not. I guess the most famous non-dual teacher would be Eckhart Tolle. He's also a non-dual teacher. So he's the most famous one. But then there are others like Rupert Spira, Adya Shanti. Um, yeah. Do yeah. you do you remember the first time you recognized non-dual philosophy in your own experience, having grown up in Finland and traveling to India? Did you have an aha moment, or did you hear perhaps like about this idea? Uh, and then maybe upon traveling to India, had some sort of demonstration of somebody living according to the non-dual philosophy that your mind kind of opened to, oh my gosh, that's a whole nother way of looking at the world. Yeah, I think it has been gradual. I guess first it was just reading about it. Uh, and then when you were contemplating different worldviews, uh, for me, it was just always the most appealing was different versions of non-duality. So first I got to know Advaita Vedanta maybe, mm. uh, or initially maybe it was Zen Buddhism and then uh, Advaita Vedanta, and then later on this um, uh, classical uh, non-dual tantric view, uh, Advaita Shaivism. So first it was just studying about it, and it just was the most compelling worldview. Uh and then you started doing the, or I started doing the practices that were recommended in those circles or in those philosophies, which are often 
practices like self-inquiry, you try to inquire into your own nature, yourself, that what am I really? What, what is it that I'm really the deep, deepest, deepest down? What is my essence? Uh, and then uh, it can be just sitting. That's one practice, just being aware of being aware, being aware of awareness as such. And when you do these kind of things long enough or often enough, then you might stumble on the realization that actually this is all there is, uh, at least in my experience. Um, And of course, there are often people have slight mystical experiences uh, with these, these, but the mystical experiences themselves, they are not ever like the important uh, events, but uh, but, uh, like the ultimate realization would be the way I would describe it it, it's like a non-phenomenal recognition of your of your uh, Mm. of your own nature so it's like a paradigm shift in how you experience Mm. experience life uh, meaning that uh, you try to be as often as possible in a, in a state where you don't conceptualize things, but rather you just experience life without mental blabber, uh, just as a, as a seamless whole, so to speak. So everything in your experience be, being a seamless whole is one way to define non-duality. There, there are no, uh, there are no uh, borders between you and the world, so to speak. Mm. How, so you've had an experience of teaching yoga in relation to here's a sequence of asana and in the, in the realm of teaching a yoga class and, or that's, that's a Hatha yoga based class where you're practicing posture, you know, you can learn something and then you can show somebody something and it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but mm. there's a structure that if you know what yeah. you're doing, it's not hard to yeah. teach if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Something like non-dual uh, perspective, how do you teach that? Apart from what we're doing right now, I mean, I think obviously like when yeah. you mentioned Ramana Maharishi and his ability to just mm. sit in the company of his students and like you said, either practice silence or maybe answer questions, but it was through this dialogue mm. process, which... You said you also had done a lot of study in, in um, Western philosophy, such as like Socratic thinking. I'm guessing you've delved, mm. you've you've dove into yeah. Socrates, yeah. and and there was this idea of um, through dialogue, we mm. can arrive at a place where there's understanding. Uh, but yeah. can you answer? I'm curious how this this to me sounds like it would be a little more nuanced in yeah. educating or teaching about. What, yeah. what type of skills do you formulate in the process of if, if you had this goal of I want to teach a student about mm. non-dualism? <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, it's uh, often it's about giving like verbal pointers. Uh, of course, you can talk about the philosophy uh, par se. Uh, that's one way to teach f- initially it to talk about the philosophy. That th- this is a worldview that. Uh, in non-duality people believe in so you either 
buy it or you don't buy it or you investigate it or you don't investigate it. But if it appeals to you, then you invest, investigate it. Uh, and then if you sit with people who have had the, like the personal um, non-phenomenal recognition or realization of their of their like essence nature, uh, then they can from their own experience give like verbal pointers, uh, which would be like like for example one some one of the most simple one is just asking, uh, are you aware? If I ask you, are you aware? What what is your answer? Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's what everybody would uh, answer if they understand the question. They first <laughs> pause for a while and then they say, "Yes, I am aware." <laughs> and then. Uh, I mean, I think I am. No, you don't think you are. You are, you know you are, because otherwise you wouldn't hear my voice yes. if you weren't aware. Yes. You That's... wouldn't feel your body if you weren't aware. Good point. You wouldn't see this computer if you weren't aware. Yes. Because all the perceptions can happen only within awareness. Um, but then you might start like um, identifying more and more just being the awareness, like the perceiver. Mm. Yes. That's which per- perceives. And one way to um, start like recognizing it as such is that you, uh, you define it as it is something that doesn't change. It doesn't alter. It's just always there in your, own, in your own experience. It's always there. There's one thing that is constant in your experience or any conscious being's experience. There is awareness. You're conscious. There is consciousness. Uh, so that doesn't change, but everything else changes. Like we often uh, hear this um, uh, this uh, maxim that change is the only constant. And that refers to the phenomenal world, that in the phenomenal world, everything is always changing and nothing ever can stay the change, uh, can stay the same. But from your experience, from your point of view, from your vantage point, uh, there is something there, which we can call awareness for the lack of a better term, or consciousness for the lack of a better term. There is something there that is uh, being aware or uh, like um, testifying the existence of all the changes that are happening all the time. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And I, I, I guess one question that does pop into my head. And I, you might have had some experience with this. I, I'll, I'd like to ask. Um, I have a, I had a close relative that had um, Alzheimer's. Yeah. And the experience of watching that process. Um, yeah. I really got this feeling of the fragility of the mind. Like when the mind, mm-hmm. like what you're speaking of, where I am aware. Very, and, and, and like you said, you answered, yeah, you are <laughs> like when I, when I second yeah. guess it and I can conceptualize that. And what I noticed with Alzheimer's is there was this, it wasn't, there wasn't that clarity of mm. awareness or self-awareness even. And mm. what do you, what do you, I guess I know we can say it's a disease, like a synaptic, mm. a synaptic yeah. issue. Yeah. What, what have you encountered with this in relation to your thoughts about 
Because I, I, you know, sometimes I, I've come across this idea that, say, in India, that there's a very fine line. This isn't just in India. A very fine line between yeah. uh, spiritual awakening and madness. Mm. You know, where there's this like enlightenment element, but then if yeah. you if we were investigated, we might go somewhere, and they might say you have some sort of psychiatric disorder. We need to lock mm. you up. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Mm. What what do you what do you think in relation to what we're talking about with non dualism when we investigate these transitions of the mind through the aging process? Yeah, uh, my actually on, my my only living grandparent actually also at the moment happens to have Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's so I have also some um, personal experience of, yeah. of, of this you have you have seen and felt it yes yeah I have also seen it seen it happening. Uh, but first of all, we have to make the distinction between awareness and mind, like it always has been made in India. So in, in European in European philosophy, it's not always clear that awareness or consciousness as such is different from mind. But uh, like in yoga philosophy or Indian philosophy, mainly, there's a clear distinction between awareness and mind. Mm. So mind is part of the phenomenal world. So in mind, everything is also uh, always changing, meaning also that you might go through diseases of the mind and the mind starts, for example, falling apart. But even then, I would claim that even if you have Alzheimer's, there is a presence of awareness mm. always, but they cannot necessarily verbalize it. They cannot necessarily talk about it, but there is... Uh, because one, one way to... Um, also define awareness as such is that you have some kind of experience. Always when you have some kind of experience, any kind of experience, how, however subtle or gross, uh, you have awareness. So also I would claim that uh, a person with an Alzheimer, they have also awareness all the time, but they cannot ne necessarily talk about it. They uh, don't necessarily have memory. So they have a like a momentary awareness all the time but they don't necessarily know what happened five minutes ago but they have awareness now 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 but they don't necessarily remember this now anymore mm. but they yes. do all these so, so that you could um, visualize it as a as a string of pearls and every pearl would be like a now moment uh, and so there is always awareness in every moment but you don't necessarily remember the previous moments great yeah. answer but, but that, that's that's that, from the yeah from the uh, uh, perspective of alzheimer's but then again when you raised up this question of uh, that sometimes there's a fine line between madness and uh, and uh, uh, enlightenment so to speak uh, well here, here we have to also make the distinctions between between mystical experiences and and uh, awakening or liberation, I, I, I myself don't usually use the word enlightenment because it's it's a Western term and none none of the Indian terms that were used about this awakening or liberation they cannot really be uh, translated by by the word enlightenment. Uh, so good point. I'm going to talk now with the terms uh, awakening and and liberation. Um, so. On the way to to awakening and after uh, having your first awakening experiences, uh, the 
the awakening experiences can always deepen and deepen and deepen, maybe maybe like infinitely deepen and deepen and deepen. And during those, you can have always like uh, different types of mystical experiences during the. Some some people are like prone to have mystical experiences. Some people have the more. Some people don't ever have mystical experiences, but they still can awaken. And it's these mystical experiences that are often uh, bordering with some kind of uh, madness, uh, especially if the person doesn't have a like a. Uh, doesn't have like a framework where to put like a philosophical framework where to put these mystical experiences then it can go even into schizophrenia or something like that but if you have the philosophical framework you then can understand that okay these are just mystical experiences and they also always will change so no there there is no mm. not any experience that we can have that is constant, but every experience as such is is changing. And also mystical experiences, they come and go, come and go, just like all the other mm. mundane experiences, like mm. uh, me being hungry and then, then me not being hungry, me yes. being sleepy and then not yes. me being sleepy, me seeing some specific color and then not seeing specific color anymore. That is really yeah. interesting. That, that puts the mystical experience into the realm of the material almost like the phenomenal world that is constantly changing yeah yeah, yeah. interesting exactly. that's a really good distinction right there i like that you also brought up that if you have a philosophical framework from which to mm -hmm. then filter and or process or maybe yeah. maybe uh make sense of what yeah. just happened so yeah. then obviously you're a big fan of how important, I mean, it's probably a very obvious statement of how important philosophy is. Yeah. Yeah. One of the functions of philosophy is to, uh, first of all, give you like a goal, what to, wh why you are practicing for. So they give you, set these goals, so to speak, but they also give you understanding because when you do, uh, for example, yoga or medita meditation practices, like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra in the third third chapter of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he talks a lot about these different types of uh, samyama experiences, different kind of mystical uh, experiences or parapsychological parapsychological experiences that you can have. And if you don't have uh, like the understanding that these kind of things can happen, then you can really freak out if something all of a sudden happens to you that uh, the Western uh, materialistic science cannot explain. To you, so it is uh, that I think also that's the reason why potentially spend so much time uh, with the with these experiences in the third third chapter because he wants to warn people that these kind of things can happen, not necessarily, but these kind of things can happen. So be aware. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you made mention that you can almost classify some folk, some people are a little more prone toward. Being, yeah. having a mystical experience and some of us are not prone, although we can have still an awakening uh, regardless yeah. Yeah. of whether we're prone or not. Uh, yeah. And I know it's a little taboo to even talk about this. I guess, I don't know if it's taboo or not. Maybe it is. Um, uh, do, do you have mystical experiences? Are you prone to the mystical experience or do you often watch people and go, hmm, I wonder, wonder why they're, I've never had that. Interesting. You know, like, 
What, what, yeah. where, where would you put yourself? Well, I, I'm not especially prone, but I have, have had some subtle experience because mystical experiences, that they can be really like, really like uh, uh, world altering, uh, worldview altering just in one go, a bit like, uh, like, for example, when you're, if you would be under like a psychedelic, they can often alter your worldview in one go. And that's also a mystical experiences, experience that you have under a psychedelic, under the influence of a psychedelic. Uh, but then there are also more subtle and more common, more normal mystical experience that, that almost everybody has. Like, for example, uh, we sometimes, or it's really common that people, for example, when the phone rings, that people know who is calling before they look at the phone. That's also a mystical experience because there's some kind of telepathic connection then with, with that person. Uh, so these kind of experiences are really common. Yes. Uh, or yes. knowing sometimes in advance something that something is going to happen, a so-called precognition, that you know in advance or you feel it in your body uh, in advance that uh, something is going to happen. That's also a mystical experience. Um, or... For example, one of my most memorable experiences that I would call a mystical experience is when I went to Rishikesh for the first time in my life. I had already gone to Mysore many times, but then it was maybe my sixth or seventh uh, travel to India. I decided, okay, let's explore a bit the north also. And I went with a friend to Rishikesh. We first landed in Delhi and then took a cab drive to Rishikesh. And... Uh, then we saw the Ganga River, the River Ganges, for the first time, and uh, and we went. And I had been like like always. Usually, just before I went to India, I had to do a lot of work at my yoga studio. I had to uh, yeah. do lots of uh, work just before going. So I was always a bit stressed when I first when I went to India. And I remember that that, that time also, I had a lot of stress on my mind. Still, when I landed in India, and then we went with my friend after after taking our stuff to the hotel. We went to the River Ganges. And uh, then we rolled up our sleeves from our pants and walked into the Ganges. And all the stress was gone. My 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 mind went like blank, yes. silent for minutes on end. And I was just... Yes. Wow. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. And that was a mystical experience also, that you, the stress just goes in one second... And why did it happen when I stepped into the River Ganges? I don't know, but something interesting happened there. Yeah. I, I like the way that you're explaining real-time experiences because I think often when we embark upon yoga, studying yoga philosophy, there's this, um, you know, like uh, something far off in the distance idea that maybe if I keep with my practices, I will attain um, this sort of uh, elusive but really intriguing idea of being awakened. But I like that you're bringing it into a momentary awareness of like, and, and I think like probably it wouldn't matter if I went to the Ganges River and uh, India or if I was in Finland and I decided to do an ice ice bath and sauna <laughs> today that, but like you said, like where's you feel a shift in your body and mm. you're aware that all of this uh, stress has just departed or that you had a, a change, a shift. 
yeah. you're clumping that into or putting that into the idea or the category of a mystical experience. Because when you when you say like that, I can think of maybe a lot of different a lot of mystical experiences yeah. that are happening all day yeah. every day, <laughs> like that. That yeah, kind of yeah. makes me think a little more yeah. like, yeah. yeah. E- even right now, to be able to talk to you on the computer through some amazing form of technology that just we're on the other sides of the world, and 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 here we are having this conversation. I mean, so so I, I appreciate that. And I can, I think I, I'm getting a little bit more of a glimpse of what you're pointing at in relation to, to this, this concept or this philosophy, how, how does non-dualism then apply to say people that are processing trauma and is there a way to, um, utilize these ideas to heal? Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, one, one more thing about the mystical experience please, and awakening, or, or the distinction between them. So, so I want to still make clear that when I make the, made the distinction or, or said that uh, some people are not prone to mystical experiences, uh, it still uh, it still doesn't take any anything away from their their ability to or their potential to awaken to their true nature. So, because the awakening itself to their essence nature is itself is not in the same sense. Uh, it's not a mystical experience because it's not really uh, it's not an experience in the sense that it comes and goes or it's it's not an experience in the sense that it's bound to always come and go but it's rather a paradigm shift that can can become permanent for you so you can start experience so usually it doesn't come in one go a permanent experience for you experience difficulties with language but it doesn't usually come uh, a, usually right away a permanent non-phenomenal recognition for you, but it can become. So in that sense, it's not an experience. If we define experience, something that comes and goes, uh, uh, like in, with in your perceptions or as thoughts in your mind or as feelings or emotions. Uh, so yeah, that that distinction I wanted to make. But then your your question about the trauma. Mm, um, well, w- what happens when people, so to speak, uh, awaken to their uh, essence nature is that they st- stop bit by bit, more and more, they stop uh, identifying with their body mind. And of course, trauma is something in the body mind. Uh, and when you're not identified with the body mind, you're not identified with the trauma either anymore. So you don't necessarily hold on to the, you're not um, um, holding on to or clinging to the trauma. And of course, it doesn't mean that then right away all your trauma is just gone, but uh, it it makes it easier for you to start working in different kinds of therapeutic modalities uh, with different kind of therapeutic modalities with the trauma and uh, and uh, then when you if you for example uh, have uh, have uh, like uh, flashbacks of traumatic experiences you can stay as an uh, let's say aloof observer of those experiences and just let them go through you meaning that um, you don't try to push them away or you don't try to suppress them or you don't freak out because of them, but you realize also the flashbacks of traumatic experiences uh, 
that they are also just experiences that come and go, meaning that you can just let them move through you and uh, try to experience them as raw as possible, as raw sensations without the story. Because what also happens with awakening that your mind is not uh, like um, your mind is not um, confabulating stories all the time. So when you have any kind of uh, feeling or emotion or sensation, if you can let go of the story, then you can also let go faster of the sensation or feeling mm. or emotion which is uncomfortable for you. Yes, that makes great sense. You're making it sound so simple. I like it. Because sometimes... Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> or, or some people put it this way, that it's not necessarily easy, but it can be simple. Uh, in the, in the, it can be simple in the way that when you, mm. when you learn to just be the aware presence, then uh, it is just observing what is going through you and uh, you don't have to... Uh, you can still have really uncomfortable feelings, so it's not easy in that sense. But in a way, it's simple. Yeah. I love the analogy that you used earlier regarding when we were speaking about, say, memory dysfunction, that there's a now moment, a now moment, a now moment, as if they are a bead with a thread mm. moving through it. So there's some continuity. And um, yeah. and then just there's just the, not, the non-awareness of the previous now moment. And when you're making mention of mystical experiences and the awakened mind, I wonder if, say, like we have 10 beads in a row and the first bead is an awakening experience uh, or an, a, a mystical experience that we experience for whatever that duration of time would be. And then the second mm -hmm. bead, third bead, fourth bead isn't. I'm back in that mind of like, I'm worried, I'm stressed, I'm freaking out. Yeah. And then the fifth beat is, oh, an awakened moment. And mm -hmm. then, and so there's a little bit of space in between. Mm -hmm. Is it, because I know we have to be like aware of like when I set a goal, if I think I'm striving for something in the future, I'm missing being in the moment sometimes and just experiencing what is now. Mm. Is there, would you say in the non-dual philosophy that we're speaking about, speaking about, is it our goal to try to make not only the first bead an awakened experience, but also the second and the third and the fourth? Yeah. So that eventually all yeah. those moments are all yeah. one continuous state yeah. of being awake. Yeah. So yeah, that that is that that could be said to be the goal that uh, to that uh, awakening or being in the wake, awake state, uh, meaning that you so like identify with your essence nature or the consciousness as such. Uh, that is the is the goal, and uh, and uh, usually it happens so that you first have like a short shift into that kind of state, and then if you keep at it you start having longer and longer shifts into that state until it at some point becomes permanent. And then that I would call liberation. So I would also make the distinction between awakening and different like uh, mm. depths of mm. awakening. Mm. And then a liberation is uh, when you never ever uh, think that uh, what you are is the body mind. Mm. Uh, but instead you always, even, even if you go, however horrible experiences 
through uh, however horrible experiences through your body mind is going, you still don't uh, uh, identify with the body because usually, of course, uh, if we feel pain, we right away identify with the body. Oh, there's pain. I want to get rid of it. And usually of the uncomfortable feelings we got, want to get rid of and of the pleasant experiences, we want more of those. Uh, but I guess a permanently awake pe- person, which uh, I definitely am not, uh, they wouldn't, they they don't, and also potentially talks about it, this, that for them, it doesn't really matter is the experience uh, pleasant or unpleasant. They just take it as it comes. Yes. Uh, so yes. they stop preferring uh, uh, chocolate to carrots, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So there are some, some, uh, yes. some, there are some examples of like, um, one of the teachers, non-dual teachers that I have encountered, encountered online lately is this uh, woman called Kiran Trace. And apparently she had like, as I don't know the, sp- the details of her past, but she has said that it is as traumatic as it can be. Uh, but she don't want to tell the details because she don't want people to like um, dwell over the details of her hor- horrible past. But but she apparently don't anymore feel the trauma at all. And and for her, like also to for example Eckhart Tolle, it happened bef- without any spiritual interest, without any so-called spiritual mm. uh, spiritual mm. practices. So for some people. The awakening can happen without practice, and then usually, when when it happens without practice, then they usually because they first don't understand what the heck is going on with them. They start reading philosophy, India, for example, Indian philosophy or Eastern philosophy or Christian mystical philosophy, um, and they learn. Okay, there are also other people who have experienced these kind of things. So this is what I'm going through, um, and then they either start, te- start start teaching or don't start teaching. So there are also Apparently, lots of awakened beings nowadays who don't teach or don't want to teach. They just live their normal life doing whatever they do. And, uh, and uh, yeah. Yes. Do you think it was your initial... Your your initial foray into philosophy and yoga and meditation... Did you have a mystical experience first that then caused you to want to do the study that you've done and the research that you've done or? No, no. I I think for me it was um, usually, usually people when they start doing uh, these so-called spiritual practices, they either are unhappy with themselves. Mm -hmm. I was that I was unhappy with myself and I wanted change or they want mystical experiences or they want uh, power over others. Mm. Uh, and in, in the tantric traditions, there's actually a prayer wow. that you should say every day that uh, I want to do my practice uh, for the truth of being, out of love of my, love for myself, and for the benefit of, for all beings. Because usually always people start on the spiritual journey because they, want, because they are unhappy with themselves, they even hate themselves. Uh, and, uh, of course, yoga, yoga practices can help with that. Uh, but it's not like the, that's not what they are designed for. 
initially, uh, or then people just want uh, mystical experiences, which Chokwam uh, Trungpa, uh, the famous uh, Tibetan Buddhist oh. teacher, called famously spiritual materialism. Uh, yes. That's also a form of materialism that you just want new experiences, always new experiences. But that then you get so like stuck with new experiences, and it's not really any different from getting new uh, experiences through drugs or or any any other sensual means or then people often we have these sad examples in the in the yoga and meditation world where where a bit narcissistic people become gurus and then they start abusing people uh, so often sometimes people start the yoga practice or meditation practice because because they want influence over others but yeah so that, that that's why in the tantric tradition we do this uh, this prayer that let me not uh, falter into those three categories, but let the, let me uh, be freed of them and just do this uh, because I love myself, because I want to know the truth of existence, and because I want to do this for the benefit of, of all for all beings. So f- for me, it was definitely that I was just super unhappy with myself. I was like uh, socially awkward and. Uh, uh, prone to depression and stuff like that, and I just wanted to change. That's why I wanted. That's why I started to do yoga, and I did change. Yeah. Very cool, Marco. I I love this discussion. I I know to stay on time with you. I I um I, I first I don't I know this could take us down a whole another long conversation. So maybe I'll have to save it for the next time, but. I'm on the last yeah. chapter of Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Trung Yung Chumpa, and I'm really enjoying yeah. it. And um, yeah. and at the same time, because I know folks that were studying with him at Naropa in Colorado yeah. uh, back in the 70s or in 80s, yeah. that um, then upon hearing about the how his power kind of got misused, yeah. as I'm yeah. reading it, I'm finding like, wow, what an incredibly gifted teacher and at mm. the same time i'm going but how and why did yeah did he falter in that direction and and, yeah. I, and i don't think that we have to answer that or try to figure that out right now but yeah. i earlier in our conversation i was about to bring that book up because i wanted to ask you something about that and uh yeah. so i'm glad you did I th- maybe that was a mystical experience there we had some sort of uh <laughs> yeah. yeah but um i, I actually tell uh, me tell me I, I'm not in a rush at the moment, so if you have time, we can still go on for another 20 minutes or so. Uh, but uh, why, why, why it happens to some people that they, when they start getting power over other people, they start abusing other people, is that uh, when when you get the awakening or the awakening experience as such, that that's not the most in, that's not the most difficult part of the liberation process or the yogic process, but the most difficult part is is integrating the awakening experiences uh, of your or, or or the recognition of your essence nation integrating it to, to to all spheres of your life so what happens is that with many teachers they often have mystical experiences or paradigm shifts as awakening uh, awakenings but then they uh, they fail to integrate that to all spheres of their lives of their life life and uh, 
and they, for example, become attached to, for example, the power that they have mm. over others. And that also happened happen in the Ashtanga community, as we yes. unfortunately yes. learned during the Me Too movement. But yeah. Were you, in your process of studying in India with Patabi Joyce over all those years, did you witness, was it obvious to you that there was some misuse of power? Well, I actually started going there quite late. So the first time I went to India was in, was it 2007? But it was the last year that Patabi Joyce was actively teaching. So I was there in January, I think it was 2007 or eight. And then soon after that, in March, he fell seriously ill and never really recovered. So that was the last winter that he was really in the Shala teaching. And the next year, it was then Sharat who was actually had taken over. He was still alive, Patabi was still alive, but he wasn't teaching anymore. I saw him, uh, yeah, and two years after the second, I mean, the third time I went to India, he was still alive, and I saw him maybe once in a conference and once in the office, but he didn't say anything, and then he died quite soon after that. Yes. But I did, because the only time that I was with him in the shala there was during the time when they already had the big shala, so there was like, what, 70 people at the same time in the shala. Yes. Um, so I didn't really see anything myself. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't say that I, I saw anything. But of course, I did see the... I, I did find... For, I. I well, I did see one thing when, 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 well, actually the first time I met him was in Helsinki half a year before I went to India. So his last tour in Europe happened the summer before I went for the first time to Mysore. And, and I practiced with him in, in Helsinki for one week. And it was only lead classes. And always after the lead class, some people queued up and they went to thank him, either touched his feet or 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 gave him a kiss and what i then noticed was that when he was ki ki kissing the women on the mouth he often also uh patted their behind which of course teachers usually don't do for example in university i have never seen a teacher <laughs> patting their students on their behind yes so yeah. i found that a bit odd yeah yeah, yeah. understood i hear you man i hear you um well, that's good insight. I, that, that thought crosses my mind a lot. And I appreciate the way you explain that. I think that does make sense. Man, I, I really, really enjoy this. I, I, yeah, I, really, I really enjoy, I, I've, I enjoy having this opportunity to speak with you, Martico, and hearing your perspective. And, um, I, I'm so thankful to Frank for introducing me to you. And um, I, I've had such, I'm having such a great time meeting, meeting Finns. I, I, you're you're I, stuck in this Finnish loop because you always recommend something. Somebody and they always recommend some other Finn. So I might yes. recommend some, some other person now. I'm just going to recommend a Finn. Yeah. I want to I'll take it. I'll take loop. it. I'll take it. I mean, the, I, the process of. Um, finding folks to interview. Yeah. I mean, I mm -hmm. love it. I enjoy it. And I, I love having conversation, uh, having us having never really met each other, have any, it just comes out of faith and trust. You know, we, that, yeah. that, you know, we both enjoy yoga and have had some practice in it. And uh, let's just see what, 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 what you've learned, you know, and what you've come across. So I think yeah. it's an incredible, 
I mean, I really enjoy this, Marco. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day here. And uh, I, I, I would actually, I would like to start, a, tell me. We have a holiday because I, usually I, at this time I'm, I'm at work, uh, but we have a holiday because we have the in, Finnish Independence Day. So Finland turns oh. today 106 years 106. old. So that's why I'm at home at this time. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. How will you celebrate? Is there anything like... No, this, this is my celebration, having this discussion. All yeah. right. All right. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, I really appreciate this so much. And, uh, it, you know, it's funny because, uh, uh, let me just be really honest here, I... um. I on I I would like to schedule these podcasts to be like two hours, three hours, mm-hmm. because yeah. you know you just get down the track and you, yeah. and then we break through this. You know, okay, I I trust you, and you're feel I feel like mm-hmm. you're trusting me, and so it's okay, and we can chat, and yeah. and then I have listeners who sometimes they go, Todd, like when I see that the podcast is over an hour, I go, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. how am I going to do yeah. this? And I recently had one where, and then I released one recently that was an hour and a half, and and so one of our yeah. listeners told me she goes oh my gosh, I can't believe, like I saw it and I was like, he's killing me. Like, what is he doing? He's making us for long. And then she was like, it was so fascinating. I loved every minute of it. Like, and so she was laughing at herself just for having that, all the stuff our mind does, you know, all this, like, how, how am I going to do this? How will I make it through? And then, so, um, I'm trying to stick to the one hour format just because like, you know, nowadays with modern social media and stuff, it's like you have 30 seconds or you have 60 seconds to make your point, to make your claim. That's actually, yeah, of course, (laughs) if you're doing just like, um, if you're, for example, advertising something, then it's often very short uh, attention span that people have. But if people really put the time aside to, for example, listen to a podcast or watch a podcast. Yes. If the topic is interesting, I think we we shouldn't underestimate people. They can still concentrate on stuff for a long time. For for example, uh, yeah. the, isn't the most most um, popular podcast in the world Joe Rogan Experience? And his podcasts are often three hours long, and people watch them. Hundreds of millions of people watch them. You know? You're right. You're right. Well, maybe you're. I think you're giving me a good suggestion here. How about Marco? Maybe on the next, if you're open to doing this again, let's yeah. let's yeah. go for a marathon. Let's do the three, yeah, yeah. Let's take the three hour journey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So the, all yeah. of you listening, the next time you see Marco on on the podcast, um, you know, get, get, it's yeah. a course. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be a all right deal, my friend. It's it's on. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Marco. I um, I really appreciate. It. Let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it again. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you. Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review and join us next time.